Welcome everyone to, to today's uh, uh, Lara session. Uh, today's topic uh, that our uh, dear guest, uh, Dr. Kenneth Valpe, professor of uh, theology from University of Oxford will present is uh, scriptural reasoning on logic and ultimate truth, uh, specifically in an Indian tradition, Indian religious tradition, which is the Gaudiya Vaishnava tradition. As some of you may know or may not know, um, our dear Professor Kenneth is also a Swami from Gaudiya Vaishnava tradition. He's uh, uh, a practitioner of, of this tradition, also a known scholar who has published uh, extensively on various uh, topics. Uh, I would uh, mention a few publications which are relevant for today's uh, today's presentation. Um, he is an expert in Bhagavata Purana uh, scripture, and also uh, recently he has published on uh, cow care in uh, Hindu animal ethics. Uh, today's talk uh, will also help us unpack uh, some of the verses of the Bhagavata Purana, Upanishadic traditions, and uh, Gaudiya Vedanta. So welcome, Professor Kenneth, and uh, thank you very much for, uh, for honoring us with your presentation. Thank you, Dragana, and thank you, Francisco, and thank you, Ricardo, also. <laughs> and also my thanks to all of you for joining. Um, I, I, I think... First, I should make a small correction. It sounded like you said my title is Scriptural Reasoning on Logic and Ultimate Truth. It, it's on language and ultimate truth, but um, they both start with L. So <laughs> I want to share my screen. Let's see if we can do this. Uh, da -da -da -da. Yes. Share screen. Now let's see if we can make it full screen. There we go. Good. Okay. Um, now, as I understand, I should aim to keep things within, what, 40, 45 minutes or so, um, and then open for discussion. Is that right? Yes, I'm seeing nodding. Okay, uh, good. So, <clears throat> I should say this is uh, really a kind of work in progress. Uh, and I think my sort of guiding question that's behind, behind what I'm discussing today, but which uh, would not be thoroughly answered here today is um, to do with sort of behind all of the philosophical discourse of Vedanta uh, and maybe we can say especially Vaishnava Vedanta is uh, the sort of what is considered out of bounds claim uh, of Buddhist traditions that uh, there is no self, anatmavada. And the question that uh, comes to, to me 
sort of haunts me is what's the relation between language and the kind of thinking that comes to that conclusion uh, as opposed to understanding of language which comes to the conclusion which all of the Vedanta traditions uh, accept which is that there is a self, an atma, uh, a, uh, that we are beings which are beyond uh, the material appearance, appearances that we see. Okay, having said that, let's see. Um, more immediately, my aim is to sketch some elements of Vaishnava Vedanta, understanding of how language Language serves the purpose of an enabling knowledge of and experience or realization of what I'm going to be calling ultimate truth. And one can fill in the blank uh, with various sorts of terminology for ultimate truth. But the common term in Vedanta is going to be the word Brahman. And I'll have to uh, excuse myself in advance. I will be using a few Sanskrit terms. I try to keep them to a minimum. Uh, and I'm identifying their meaning as far as, as far as I can. So this function of language, uh, it, it seems to be arguably tethered or tied to certain presuppositions in um, in Vaishnava Vedanta, and two of these are uh, the existence of an eternal self, an Atma. So this would be Atmavada, the, the doctrine that we are all atemporal and conscious and knowing and purposeful and indeed joyful beings in our uh, essential identity. And then second, that existence and capacities of minds, manas, to engage with language as uh, vehicles of meaning, potentially enabling comprehension of ultimate truth. There exist minds uh, which have these capacities. <clears throat> um, so... Now, to define Vaishnava, for those of you not familiar, uh, these are Indic theists. Uh, they regard Vishnu as God, or uh, we may want to say more specifically Krishna. And the sort of generic term uh, for God in Sanskrit, one of several, but the one we'll use here is Bhagavan. Uh, this understanding of individual selves with minds, uh, I want to say, is crucial in the Vaishnava's rejection of Advaita Vedanta, that is, non-dualist uh, claims of absolute non-duality, or the absolute oneness of Atma and Brahma. Uh, so that's the Advaita Vedanta position, which the Vaishnavas want to argue against. Uh, again, in the background, there is the Vaishnavas' rejection of 
Buddha's no-self, anatmavada, uh, the claim. And I suspect that this is, uh, the Buddha's claim is tethered uh, to Buddhist notions of language. And it may well be, I would think, uh, it is tethered also to the doctrine of momentariness, that is, kshanikavada. And I also wonder about Buddhism's early avoidance of Sanskrit uh, as a medium of discourse, that this may be significant. Of course, the early Buddhism sort of crystallized around the Pali um, Prakrit language. But I'm not going to go into that here. Okay, so what is our concern here? It's uh, with scriptural reasoning, and we may question that term. What what do you mean by scriptural reasoning? Um, But we can go into that. In a theistic line of what would perhaps generally be called Hindu philosophical tradition, and this is specifically Vaishnava, and then it can become more specified also. Uh, The canon, the scriptural canon of this collection uh, of Sanskrit texts termed Veda uh, can be used in an inclusive sense. And here the technical terms Shruti and Smriti uh, will often be used. And... uh, They're all regarded as revealed, that is to say, heard, specifically Shruti, and remembered, Smriti. And they are, I would say, potentially revelatory. So they're revealed and they're potentially revelatory depending on qualifications of the hearers or readers of these texts. So then we narrow uh, the category Veda, and for Vaishnavas in particular, they're giving special importance uh, to one particular text, and this is known as the Bhagavata Purana, uh, also known as the Srimad Bhagavata, or Srimad Bhagavata Purana. This is a work of about 14,000 Sanskrit stanzas. And I want to focus on two of these 14,000, although I will uh, refer to, I think it's one other, uh, along with some commentary uh, from the Bhagavata's commentarial tradition, specifically of the 18th century, Vishwanath Chakravarti, Thakur, the 16th century, Jiva Goswami, and we will see if there is time, possibly, from also 18th century Baladev Vidya Bhushana. These are, um, we can say, Vaishnava scholars writing in Sanskrit uh, commentaries directly to the Bhagavata Purana or uh, other works relating, elaborating on that text. Now, before we go into uh, the Vaishnava world directly, (laughs) uh, let's think a little about the notion of ineffability. 
And for this, I'm drawing on Bimal Krishna Matila's article, Mysticism and Reality in Affability. Uh, this is uh, one of, uh, he, he's written other works uh, on this subject. He was at Oxford University, and he was particularly concerned uh, to uh, put forward uh, the logic, uh, the reason tradition of Indian philosophy, rather than or as opposed to the mystical tradition, uh, which is was sort of the stereotyping of of Indian philosophy. So he discusses ineffability as a widely held view on the inadequacy of language to express either the experience of ultimate reality or to express or describe ultimate reality itself. And he wants to emphasize, he wants to make a distinction between these two elements. There's the experience. Can I describe that experience? Maybe, maybe not. Can I describe ultimate reality? Maybe, maybe not. He wants to say, let's make a, a distinction between these two. Now, um, you'll see in my little header, uh, purvapaksha, a technical term, the, the preliminary position, uh, the position to be refuted is called the purvapaksha. And here the preliminary position is that ultimate reality and the experience of it are both ineffable. Um, they, cannot be they cannot be expressed. Uh, Matilal argues against that, uh, but I won't go so much into his particular uh, arguments. He gives a couple of examples of sort of typical pers uh, persons typically expressing ineffability. So William James, who said uh, the content of mystical, mystical experience defies expression. Uh, and here we're on the side of experience, the experience of ultimate truth. So William James says, it defies expression. Uh, D.T. Suzuki, famous for importing Zen Buddhism to America back in the 50s, uh, referred uh, to the experience in terms of irrationality, inexplicability, and incommunicability. Um, those were the two examples he gave, uh, Matilal gave. Now, uh, regarding the ineffability of the thing, it's the thing experience, the ultimate reality. Matilal is suggesting uh, it may be because of its uniqueness. Our language, um, our language apparatus, as he says, uh, may not be able to describe it adequately. And then I'm quoting him here, he says, it cannot be claimed always that for each unique thing in this world, there exists a proper description in a given language. And so a particular thing may be ineffable 
in a given language. Now, I was reflecting on this, and I think we've all had this experience. You want to uh, describe a friend of yours to someone who uh, doesn't know your friend, and you may try <laughs> uh, with some frustration to describe their physical appearance. Well, person's very tall and thin uh, and has... Has a, has a deep voice and, you know, you, <laughs> how much can you say about this person? And even if you expand, uh, maybe this person has written an autobiography. Um, okay, maybe that helps you to know this person. But we may say still there's something, there's a remainder uh, to, to know or to understand. So, so Matilal is highlighting uh, that what may be the issue here uh, in describing the object uh, that we're calling, that he's calling ultimate reality, uh, it may be due to its uniqueness. Just as we uh, individuals, there's a certain uniqueness to us. Um, and now stepping aside from uh, Matilal, uh, I just came across this, Mark C. Taylor's definition of religion. Uh, this is from his, I think, quite recent book, Seeing Silence. Religion is the apprehension of the unspeakable, unnameable, unknowable, unfigurable, once named God or God beyond God. Uh, so it seems that via negativa is alive and flourishing. <laughs> now I'm going to jump into the Vedic literature, and this goes uh, way back to the Taittiriya Upanishad, considered to be one of the earliest of this genre of texts within the Vedic corpus. Famously, we have this, and the Taittiriya Upanishad is quoting this from uh, another source, which it does not identify. Before they reach it, words turn back together with the mind. And then the, on a positive note, one who knows that bliss of Brahman, he is never afraid. Uh, so there's something attractive about knowing this bliss of Brahman, but don't try to reach it with words uh, and indeed with your mind. This is, seems to be the general notion. And now I come, I jump way forward uh, to the genre of Puranas and specifically the Bhagavata Purana, which is... Um, I can say, very dear to the Vaishnavas, Vaishnavas in general and of the Gaudiya tradition in particular. And we have one stanza uh, from rather late in the, uh, toward the end of the text, the 10th book, uh, and near the end of the 10th book, where the king, uh, who has been... Uh, posing questions throughout the text to the sage Shuka, 
asks this question, O Brahman, how can the Vedas, and here the word is Shrutayaha, whose scope of action is the phenomenal world, Gunavrittaya, function, Charanti, in or within or in relation to ultimate reality, Brahman, which is indescribable, Anirdeshye, beyond material substance and its subtle causes, Sat Asata Pare. Okay, that's that's the question which is going to prompt uh, a quite long chapter of response, most of which, I have to say, doesn't really seem to be addressing the question. <laughs> uh, but we may come back to that point. But uh, I'm going to look at the first immediate response to this. Before that, let's kind of rephrase this question. Since the ultimate reality, Brahman, has no class, jati, or substance, dravya, or quality, guna, or action, kriya, how can Vedic language indicate it directly, sakshat, rather than by indirect reference? Um, how, since language invariably signifies objects in terms of class, substance, quality, or action. So that's the basic question. And now comes the initial answer, uh, the somewhat uh, strange answer, we may say. Shuka replies, the Supreme Lord, he refers to here as Prabhu, manifested the material intelligence, senses, mind, and vital air, buddhi, indriya, mana, pranan, of the living beings, jiva, which is more or less equivalent with the word atma or atman, so that they could pursue finite gains, matra, artam, and worldly existence, bhava artam, and ultimately attain liberation, atmane akalpanaya. So at this point, one could say sort of incredulously, what? <laughs> what, what does this have to do with the question that was asked? Okay, now there's going to be a fair amount of explanation of this uh, by... Uh, the commentators. But before we get to that, um, we may want to rephrase this uh, response. The Vedas can communicate ultimate reality. Why? Because ultimate reality is Bhagavan, who, being all-powerful, not what, but who, being all-powerful, creates language. And he creates the senses, the mind, the intelligence, and the life air, the prana, of jivas, by which they can comprehend language both for ordinary and extraordinary purposes. So the question is sort of, uh, as it was raised, is making a certain assumption, and that assumption is that language has only 
ordinary purposes, uh, having to do with class and quality and so on of this world. So this is now suggesting um, <laughs> in an indirect way uh, that this may be, there may be a, a deeper way to understand language recognizing that there is a person, a divinity behind language who has the power to make language do wonderful things. Okay, now we come to the 18th century commentator, Vishwanath. Um, and uh, bear with me, this is a bit longer. He says that sound and so on of this world would be just as indescribable as Brahman, if there would be no senses, mind, int and intelligence. We therefore have all facility for experiencing and describing to others sensations of sight, sound, and so on. In the same way, he that is God may mercifully give someone the ability to realize Brahman. If Krishna or God chooses. He may create some extraordinary way for words to function, apart from their ordinary references to material substances, qualities, categories, and actions. And this may make even Brahman expressible by words. After all, he says, Krishna is the Almighty Lord, Prabhu, and he can easily make the indescribable describable. Okay, so this is, uh, <clears throat> everything now we can see is hinging on the identity of Prabhu, uh, an almighty and all-powerful Lord, uh, who is being identified with Brahman uh, as Bhagavan. Now, Vishwanath quotes uh, another stanza within the Bhagavata as a support for what he's saying. And the Bhagavata is full of narratives, um, very intriguing narratives, all focused on the, uh, the, the lila, the actions, the divine actions of Bhagavan. One text, uh, sorry, one stanza, Bhagavan as Matsya is saying, to his devotee, you will be thoroughly advised and favored by me. And because of your inquiries, everything about my, excuse me, glories, Mahimanam, which are known as Param Brahma, another way of saying ultimate reality, will be manifest within your heart. And thus you will know everything about me. Hmm, here we may wonder, manifest within your heart, is that going to be with language, without language? But he does say, uh, be advised hmm, that uh, your mahim, my mahima, mahima glories uh, implies verb, verbal expression generally in Sanskrit. So uh, what's happening here, Matsya is saying, you will know Brahman directly, uh, defined by sound, 
manifesting as the statements of great sages recorded in Vedic literature, which says Brahman is like this. Okay, uh, but a condition is specified, and that is this knowledge depends on divine grace. Only by receiving my mercy, he says, and here the word is anugrihitam, uh, which Vishwanath uh, glosses as prasadikritam, is, uh, is it possible to realize Brahman through the words of the Vedas? And Vishwanath wants to specifically make this point. It is not an indirect or metaphorical understanding of Brahman. Because otherwise, he argues, otherwise by my mercy would be meaningless. He's saying by my mercy that means you're going to know this directly, not indirectly. Okay, again we may ask what is meant by glories. And uh, Vishwanath elaborates, he refers to another Upanishad, the Shvetashvatara, which says, Sakshi Cheta Kevalo Nirgunascha. He is the unique, fully aware witness without material qualities. And the point here is that the term witness, Sakshi, um, is, an, is a quality, it's an attribute. And so this uh, must be non, non-material. This distinction's material, spiritual, we may want to discuss later, but I'll leave that for now. Uh, Again, glory suggests attributes that can be verbalized. Uh, He gives, then Vishwana gives another translation of that second, that second stanza, which was the initial response to the question of the king. He says, Sri Krishna, Bhagavan, creates the Mahatattva, primordial matter in this tradition, the senses, sense objects, elements, mind, prana, for their functioning in relation to the self, Atmane, and for the welfare of the jivas. So there's two functions, there's two things here, functioning uh, and welfare. Thus, a person can engage the spiritual in the case of the perfected devotee and the material in the case of the practicing devotee, uh, the intelligence, mind, senses, and vital energy in the worship of the Lord or the accurate verbal praise of the Lord. Um, Because speaking is not possible without the prana, mind, and senses, they are created for the function of speaking. So he's he's explaining why this initial response is just uh, talking about the Lord creating these various facilities, mind, senses, etc., of living beings. And... uh, I don't know if this helps or not, but it, I couldn't resist playing with PowerPoints. So <laughs> here we have on the bottom uh, the senses, the mind, the buddhi, and the prana. And uh, these can be engaged. This is the point for the Vaishnavas. Uh, they can be engaged in the worship of the Lord. 
And there are going to be two sorts of atma, of souls who are doing this. Those who are more on the material side, uh, practicing souls, they're technically called sadhakas, and on the spiritual side, the perfected souls. Uh, and time allowing, we'll come back to this um, with an interesting angle from Jiva Goswami. No, this is going to be still Vishwanath. Let's see. Yes, here it is. Okay. We're still with Vishwanath, and uh, in his explanation, he's still explaining this second stanza. And he's quoting from another Upanishad. This is considered a much later Upanishad. It's, um, it's a rather poetic description, we may say, of the Lord. And allow me to quote the verse in the Sanskrit, Satpundarika nayanam megabang vaidyutambarang dvibhujang mauna mudradyang vanamalinam ishvaram the Supreme Lord, appearing in his two-armed form, had divine lotus eyes, a complexion the color of a cloud, and garments that resembled lightning. He wore a garland of forest flowers, and his beauty was enhanced by his pose of meditative silence. Mona Mudra. Um, Okay, well, that's very poetic. <laughs> so what to make of this? Vishwanath explains. The transcendent intelligence and senses of the Siddha. So now this distinction is going to be very important between the Siddha and the Sadaka, the practitioner. Uh, the transcendent intelligence and senses of the Siddha, the perfected adept, can correctly perceive Krishna's or Bhagavan's purely spiritual beauty. His realizations or experiences are echoed <clears throat> in the Gopal Tapani Upanishad's comparisons of the Lord's eyes, body, and clothing to a, lo a lotus, a cloud, and lightning. Okay. For the sadhaka, the practitioner who is pursuing perfection, these features of Bhagavan are not actually, they're not actually perceivable, but he concentrates on such description. All right, then what? Then the Lord is moved by the practitioner's efforts. The practitioner's devotion matures. Krishna brings that dear devotee to himself and engages him in confidential service. So, only by the mercy of Krishna can the Vedas convey the transcendent form and identity of the Lord as the ultimate truth. But we see there's endeavor involved on the part of the sadhaka for this to take place. And it's understood that when the sadhaka receives that mercy or grace of Krishna, then he will have uh, a direct experience of what is described, what is echoed uh, in the Gopal Tapani Upanishad. <clears throat> okay, now, and I'm watching the clock. Um, 
One moment. Now we look at uh, something from Jiva Goswami from the 16th century. So we move back a couple of centuries uh, from Vishwanath. Uh, Jiva Goswami uh, wrote extensively on the Bhagavata Purana, his Shatsandarvas, treatise, six treatises on the uh, Bhagavata Sandarva. And he makes a distinction. He has terms learned experience and non-learned experience. Uh, and uh, the technical terms he has for this, Vaidusha Pratyaksha and Avaidusha Pratyaksha, he also uses other terms. Pratyaksha means direct encounter with the senses. Vaidusha uh, means learned. So, Jiva says, um, learning comes from the Veda, which consists of revealed speech, shruti, and there are degrees of this learning which result in degrees of knowledge of ultimate truth, Brahman. Um, the ultimate level of this knowledge, he argues, uh, is Supreme Personhood, Bhagavan, and this uh, kind of knowledge is coming, he says, from refined learning, vidvata. And how does such refined learning come? He says it comes from repetition, abhyasa, or training in the Vedas. So again, we're talking about uh, we're talking about um, scriptural reasoning. Now, the Bhagavata's uh, core project, according to, to Jiva, is to establish with the me medium of language, uh, and here we may want to say the, the post-Vedic, the classical Sanskrit, that Bhagavan is the ultimate expression of the ultimate truth, not as a compromise settling on languages supposed inadequacy, but we may want to say more the opposite of that. Uh, and so, more generally, we could say that the Jiva is arguing that the Bhagavata Purana um, schools one in the expertise required to comprehend or to realize Anubhava, to experience Bhagavan, where Bhagavan is Brahman, in its full distinctiveness uh, as a distinct person, in contrast now to the general property of non-dual consciousness afforded by general Brahman realization, uh, which is that which the non-dualist Vedantists are pursuing. Okay. Um, now I'm going to quote at the end of a very nice article by Alexander Uskokov. Uh, I didn't finish giving, the, I didn't give the subtitle. Anyway, the title is Making Sense of Religious Experience. Uh, it's about Jiva Goswami's reasoning. Jiva's religious realism, he says, is specific 
in that it accommodates epistemic relativism without drawing the conclusion that all religious experience is just a cultural construct. And he's uh, speaking about Stephen Katz, um, George Lindbeck, and so on. As the conceptualized perception of a ball, he's giving an example, may, in an ontological realism, be a gradual discovery of its properties or a specific perspective on it facilitated by concepts, language, and culture, religious experience might just as well be a discovery of divine properties facilitated by scriptural learning and practice. Thus, I, that is Uskokov, propose what he proposes is a thesis that should interest philosophers of religion, as it is an argument for religious realism that recognizes experience as conditioned by religion-specific practices and doctrine, yet need not be either reduced to a common indistinct core or be of distinct objects, distinct meaning different objects. Um, there can be one object, one ultimate reality, um, which need not be indistinct. Uh, however, there can be conditioned expressions of that one uh, reality through religion-specific practices. So, okay, so what? <laughs> little bit um, reviewing. The initial claim uh, is that ultimate truth is ineffable. The question is raised, how can the Vedas describe ultimate uh, truth since language is of this world? And the initial reply is because ultimate truth is the supreme willful person integral to his creation, his facility uh, to know through language, grasped by intelligence, mind, and senses uh, to know the ultimate truth. However, one must receive divine grace to properly comprehend such language. And uh, how do we get such divine grace? We receive it when one endeavors to hear and contemplate verbal descriptions of that ultimate truth the example, again, being from the Gopal Tapani Upanishad, um, the, the complexion like that of a cloud and eyes like lotus and so on. Um, okay, by such endeavor to hear from Vedic texts, and one may say especially its praise portions, uh, one's experience becomes learned, as Jiva Goswami would say. Um, and this means specifically being learned in Vedic wisdom. Uh, and this means increasingly becoming uh, increasingly refined by hearing specifically the Bhagavata Purana for the uh, Vaishnavas. There are degrees of learning resulting in gradations of comprehension of experience of the ultimate uh, truth, and these are specified uh, three categories in the Bhagavata Purana, 
namely as Brahman, Paramatma, and Bhagavan. We haven't discussed Paramatma. And Jiva Goswami sort of delays his discussion of Paramatma. Um, he first discusses Brahman and, and Bhagavan. Bhagavan, as the ultimate truth, experienced by the learned is elaborately expressed and described and indeed uh, it would be claimed embodied in the words, the stanzas of the Bhagavata Purana. However, the Bhagavata warns in its very first stanza, in the first, uh, the first book of the 12 books, it can be comprehended only by those who are, quote-unquote, non-envious, near, near matsarana. And this leads... Um, okay, next slide, it will be there. Uh, okay, hence, whether or not the Bhagavadas claim that the ultimate truth can be articulable by language specifically because language is created by a god to facilitate comprehension of him, whether it's convincing would seem to depend on one's predisposition, whereby the reasoning that divine omnipotence enables humans to comprehend or experience learnedly ultimate truth is at least sufficient, if not necessary, to convince one who is quote-unquote non-envious and who, following sufficient, uh, that is, devoted study of the Vedic texts, receives divine grace. If one has the predisposition for this, whereas for one not so predisposed, the ultimate truth would presumably always remain more or less ineffable, and hence would remain conceivable only in apophatic terms, the via negativa. Now, um, <laughs> one more stanza from elsewhere in the Bhagavata uh, Purana, still in the 10th book, which uh, is a striking claim of the Bhagavata in rhetorical language. It says, those deeds of Bhagavan are chanted about by those who have withdrawn from desire. They are pleasant to the ears and to the mind and are like medication to those on earth. Other than a person who slaughters animals, which man will stay away from a recital of uttama shlokas, that is Bhagavan's qualities? So it speaks quite sharply here, uh, other than a person who slaughters animals, mm, um, is, uh, is referred to. And this suggests uh, that adhikar, qualification, and predisposition, samskara, are prerequisites for comprehension, uh, for persuasion, and acceptance of the text's arguments for theistic ultimate reality, accessible and describable through language. Um, and a note, um, one more note, and then I think I'm finished. So I'm reminded of Michel Foucault's uh, observation um, 
he was responded to by Pierre Addo, uh, a criticism which is also possibly relevant. But uh, Foucault uh, notes that in ancient Greece, there was uh, very much the notion of caring for oneself. Let's see if I pronounce this more or less right. Epimeleia, heioto. Do we have a Greek expert here to fix this? Um, that this is the foundation of knoti seoton, know thyself, the famous expression. Um, and I would add to this, implying a presupposition, which the Vaishnavas hold, that there is a self to be known. Uh, and uh, But going on, Foucault says <clears throat> that beginning with Descartes, the practice of caring for oneself disappeared from the Western philosophical tradition. And as a result, the interest, uh, the focus was on... Um, knowing without necessarily having any culture of the self that might qualify oneself for that knowing. <clears throat> so, um, yeah, I end with this question. Could this explain our reservation uh, to accept the sort of self-caring implied in the Bhagavata practice leading to Bhagavan realization? Uh, I think that's, yeah, I think that's it. So. Thank you, Professor Kenneth, for immersing us in these wonderful verses. Um, do we have any questions, comments? Um, I see. Shivanand, did you, did you raise your hand? Ricardo? I, I had done a, a, a clapping. Oh, that hand. was a clap. Okay. Sorry. But I did raise my hand as well. So I can I can ask a question if, if okay. you like. <laughs> okay. And then we have Ruth after after Shivanam. Okay. Um, I just wanted to say thank you very much for this really illuminating and insightful presentation. I actually really, really learned a lot from it. Thank you. So I appreciate that very much. Uh, I, I had a question, uh, let me lower my hand so it doesn't cause confusion. <laughs> I had a question about, there was, there were a few slides which um, talked about language requiring the tools of the mind, senses, and intelligence. Uh, there was one slide, for example, which I think it mentioned that Brahman or Bhagavan um, uh, provides these facilities so that the language of scripture can be understood by the soul. Mm. What, I, what I wanted to ask is, do you have any thoughts about what the implications of that would be for the soul in itself? So if the soul isn't I, I think I understand the soul to be something distinct from material mind, intelligence, and senses. So w would that imply that the soul needs 
to make use of something external to itself if it is to know anything at all through language? Or mm. can the soul by its own faculties, something intrinsic to itself, understand and know things without having to rely on something external to itself? In other words, can we say that things like mind, intelligence, and so forth can also be understood as a sort of innate faculty of the soul in the Gaudiya Vedanta tradition? Or is that is that going too far away from that tradition's views? That was my first question, and I'll just stop there. Later on, <laughs> if I have a chance, I'll ask another one. Well, first I have to confess... Uh, lack of expertise on some of these things. I'm I'm just a beginner, especially in Jiva Goswami's works, where he really gets into the nitty-gritty of this. But I'll just say this is my understanding that indeed uh, the Atma, uh, intrinsic to the Atma, there is uh, what comes, you can say, when it when it goes into the material sphere, uh, there there gets this differentiation uh, called mind, uh, manas, buddhi, indriya, and so on, uh, that those are intrinsic to the self, uh, but in the um, what's generally called the conditioned state, uh, being in, in connection with, with matter, with temporality, then we uh, see this, as you said, what become tools of language. Uh, and so that description of how the Lord creates uh, or manifests, I think is the word, he manifests these for uh, the, uh, the soul who is ensconced in matter. It may be a way of saying that um, that which is intrinsic to the self has become inaccessible to the self uh, in the conditioned state, but the Lord, out of his kindness, um, makes those available to him in a more external sense, as you said, as tools, so that uh, the, the, the soul can function in this world and accomplish uh, his desires. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, wonderful reply. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, Ruth, please go ahead with your question. Yes, thank you, Dragana. Thank you, Kenneth. Very nice. Um, I rarely hear anybody speak about this topic in philosophy. Oh. <laughs> and I think you're last. Yeah, maybe I'm, I'm missing out on the discussion. That's also a possibility. But um, I think your question, can we say anything about God, really? or about the ultimate reality. I think your last slide uh, puts us on the right way, uh, reminding Foucault's call to think of know thyself. And then I come back to two initial remarks you made. Uh, the Buddhist tradition denies the existence of a self. And mm. I think you're right if you're talking about the, the tradition, but it's not what the Buddha said. Ah, yes, uh, uh, it's good. The Buddha good. never said in, in Samyutta 22.59, he says, you know, this is not self, that is not self. 
right. he's basically saying netty netty as the hindus yeah. put it i think yeah yeah not this not that um but he doesn't deny that as a self and he goes on in other if you want to i can send you links uh, but to practically confirm that there is a self mm thank you Similarly, yes if i may continue. similarly the the non dualist the advaitins nowadays also say that there is absolute non duality no difference between self and non self but i think they are completely confused again if you take the original so the tradition denies the self but if you go back to uh, shankara he writes a booklet it's called atma buddha uh, atma buddha self knowledge so he he clearly believes in the self otherwise he would not give his own book the title self knowledge yeah so <laughs> i think you're completely right that self and and in the christian tradition if moses asks god what shall we call you he says i am that i am mm. so i mean atman is brahman there's so many hints that all religions in the end try to tell us that god is just a sort of objectivation and a means of talking of bringing us back to the self mm. and the only confusion we nowadays have is if we say self we think of the person we think of of root of kenneth um and that is our mistake we have to correctly distinguish between what the self is and what we take the self to be Yes. And all these things that we take the self to be that is not the self that is not bhagavan. Right. But the essence the being of of oneself that is the same as god I think. Yes, thank you. So, um thank you for pointing out uh this distinction between buddhist tradition and uh the buddha. Um I've I have come across this that um in general it's said that the the jury is out uh, about also whether the tradition really means what they say when they say there is no self <laughs> they may not they I may not the theravada be... tradition is a bit more careful yeah, yeah. the mahayana uh, the tibetans and so on they are off yes um may i ask you mentioned shankara's atma bodha is it um is it undisputed that this text is from him because you know there's so many texts that are attributed and so on do you happen to know uh, i i believe we cannot go back into the past that is uh, only now <laughs> here for me yeah. but um, i think as far as texts go un- undisputed <laughs> this is one of the booklets that is uh, undisputedly attributed to him. Yes. It's okay. Good. Thank you. <laughs> and in that he uh, also in the, in the content he is practically uh, confirming the existence of a self. So I think right. the many benefits western non-dualism may have it is not advaita vedanta. <laughs> right. Yeah. That's interesting. Thank you. Thank you Ruth. Now we have Ricardo and after Ricardo Alan Cristo. Oh, well, thank you very much Professor Kenneth for for the talk it was very 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 nice and very inspiring in fact. Um well I have a question 
perhaps about your main question, and you correct me if I'm if I'm right in putting it like that. Uh, can I say? I suppose I suppose I can say that your main question is to find out whether or not language has the power to express ultimate truth or, or to express um, the, the experience of ultimate truth. Work on unmute. You've gone on mute. <laughs> sorry, I'm sorry. Okay, so if I'm right, uh, then I'd like to, to, to ask you something about the mercy component. Because I, I think I think the, the God's mercy that you mentioned, it, it's a, it seems to me a very key uh, point of your whole approach. Um, so it seems to me that the, the, the main question depends on language itself, of course, whether or not language has the power to express ultimate truth. That depends on language itself and also depends on the cognitive apparatus of the, the, the one who is using language ourselves, right? So we have those two components, which it seems from a, from, from a kind of perspective, perhaps a naive perspective, I don't know, uh, they, they are the two components that are relevant to, to answering to answer the, the question whether or not language has the power to express ultimate truth. But now we bring uh, another component, which is God's mercy. So, so my question is bringing this new component, God's mercy, uh, and if, if it is really a necessary thing, it seems to me that it is to, to make language able to express ultimate truth. So, so, so perhaps then uh, the answer doesn't depend only on those two first components I mentioned. So, so, so if you say that, yes, language can express uh, ultimate truth, but only when God gives his mercy, then it seems to me, maybe, that then it's not language that has the power to express ultimate truth because it has to be supplied with this is mercy. I, I, I'm not sure uh, if I if I'm able to to express myself, but that, that's my my point. Uh, if bringing this third component, God's mercy, uh, bringing it, uh, can I still answer the question in a positive way and say yes? Uh, God is not ineffable. Yes, language has the power to express uh, ultimate truth. Hmm. <laughs> Very nice. Um, as you were speaking, I made a little chart here, <laughs> a little triangle. <laughs> Language, our capacity, God's mercy. And I'm reminded there's a phrase uh, in the Bhagavata Purana, Shabda Brahma Vapu. The word Vapu means uh, form or body. And um, Shabda Brahma, Shabda can mean word. Uh, it can mean language, uh, broadly speaking. Um, Brahma means ultimate truth, so um, it's expressing the notion that uh, the supreme um, ultimate truth has a certain, has a form, a vapu, and that vapu, that form, is constituted of uh, of revelatory sound, let's put it that way. And so there's a sense in which language 
even ordinary language uh, is, um, you know, as, as I speak in my ordinary dealings in the course of, of a day, uh, exchanging with uh, friends and colleagues, that divinity is involved uh, invisibly and perhaps not in my awareness, but uh, the, that capacity for me to communicate and everything else that's happening in those exchanges um, is possible because of divine, divine presence. That would be, I think, the, the, way, the way it's understood. Sorry, if not in the ordinary use of language. Yeah. Yes. And then, as we saw, there is a notion that um, divine power makes it possible by divine intentionality for language to also have not just extraordinary functions, but also, sorry, not just ordinary functions, but also extraordinary functions. Now, the question could be uh, sort of where, where does the line, how much endeavor do I need to make studying, hearing, devotionally, without uh, feeling envious? How, how much do I need to hear and uh, recite and read the Bhagavata Purana before I get that uh, sense of the extraordinary power of language? Um, you know, these things are hard, hard to measure. But there is a sense of a, uh, how to say, a kind of uh, inseparability, I would say, between the two. And that makes sense? It's not a well, very specific, it's not a very technical answer. But. So if I understood well, you're saying that uh, God's power is always needed for language yeah. comprehension. Yeah, that would, that would be the understanding um, of Vaishnav theistic under, uh, understanding. God's power is always there. And I should also add um, more specifically the, uh, the term uh, which is sort of clinching uh, by, by which knowledge is awakened is bhakti. It's understood. I don't have the verse on the fingertips of my mind, um, but um, it is through bhakti, and it's used in the instrumental sense, um, knowledge and also renunciation uh, come about. There's a combination, and that's something we haven't talked about, but it has to do with this idea of self-care uh, that I mentioned in connection with Foucault. Thank you. Alan, please go ahead. Thank you very much for your talk, which uh, was very insightful and which I believe also yields a, a very interesting framework, even for the Christian tradition from which I come, uh, to spell out, um, uh, let's say, a philosophy of, of scripture, of how um, divine ineffability, which is also a part of Christian theology, relates to, to scripture. Um, my question uh, kind of piggybacks on the question of um, Ricardo, I think, and um, 
is uh, is a clarification question. So, is it is it correct to render what you what you just said as um, the divine still escapes linguistic description, but language as represented in scriptures can facilitate if you're in the right um, heart and and mind condition to sort of grasp the divine, albeit not in a well, in a, in a way that you can immediately communicate with words in the sense in which they're they're normally understood. So, would that be a a, a sensible way to spell this out? Hmm. <clears throat> it's interesting you use the word escape. Uh, that <laughs> the divine escapes description. However, uh, he can be sort of captured, nonetheless, by language. Um, if it's used in the proper way and so on. I've never quite, I haven't thought of it in such terms, so I'm not, I'm not sure, I'm hesitant to say, yes, that's a good way to put it. Um, and I am, I'm maybe a little more than hesitant uh, because the fact that that kind of language is not used, but also, as I just mentioned, this notion, Shabda Brahmavapu, uh, this idea of divinity being in some way embodied in language uh, is uh, giving, I think, a stronger, a stronger sense, a stronger value to language. Given, of course, as I've hinted, uh, there is this, there is this sense of restriction of which language. And that's something that's elaborated uh, very much in the Mimamsa uh, philosophical tradition of India, uh, which um, can sound highly sectarian, that the only way to understand uh, ultimate reality is through Veda, specifically certain texts and so on. But what I mentioned uh, at the end pointed out by Alexander Uskakov that um, seeing, perceiving, experiencing God from one perspective does not deny the possibility of, uh, of having anubhava experience from other perspectives of the same object. But I would just say in the Vedic tradition, the sort of classical, there's a much stronger value placed on on language as I mean we may still use the term vehicle as a vehicle for uh, for understanding for realizing I hope that addresses your question slightly <laughs> very good thank you thank you okay Uh, Shivanand, would you like to? Yes, please. Thank you. Uh, I was wondering, uh, Professor, is can I say that from a Gaudiya Vaishnav perspective, that ineffable means something different to inconceivable? I'm asking this because. To me, the idea of ineffable is a very familiar thing, and it doesn't need to, we don't even need to 
you know, restrict that to, to God, for example. For mm-hmm. instance, I've heard many philosophers talk about even things like colors as ineffable things. Right, you, right. you can't express it to other people other than by pointing to it. You yeah. can't communicate it in a sense to others, but nevertheless, you can still conceive it and understand it. So mm-hmm. can I say that, would it be okay to say that God might be ineffable in the way colors are, in the sense that you can't fully, completely characterize it to another Jiva? Mm. But that doesn't mean that God cannot be described or understood or conceived, I mm. should say, because he can still submit. There is still concepts that are truly applicable to God, but they're like the way colors are true, mm. but uh, you know, not, not expressible in language and yeah. communicating between people. But nevertheless, it's conceivable. Can, would it be okay to say something like that in relation to the ineffability of God? Yeah, of course. It it can depend how we want to use the word ineffable. Um, and uh, you point out something that also Matilal talks about. He says, just ordinary experience. How do you describe pain? You know, you, you have a toothache. Um, how do you describe that, <laughs> you know? Uh, we we see the limitations of language. But then what seems to be being said here, there's two things. One is um, in the utter unlimited uh, nature of the supreme, the ultimate truth, being uh, always emphasizes being ultimately a person, Uh, because God cannot be less than ourselves and we see ourselves as persons. So God must be at least um, a person. But the describing or the uh, referring to God with language always seems to come to limitations. And this is also repeatedly expressed uh, there. And it's always because of the nature of the Bhagavata Purana. It's expressed in uh, quite poetic ways. It describes the divinity uh, Anantashesha, who appears in the form of a snake with multi-heads. And what is he doing with these multiple heads? He is constantly praising the Lord, and he is coming nowhere near the end (laughs) of his praises. So that idea is there. Another an analogy is given by one of the commentators in discussing Puranic um, geography. There is the tradition that there is a a cosmic mountain, Mount Meru, uh, which extends, um, kind of penetrates through the through the, the cosmos. Uh, and is also on this earth. Uh, Okay, well, if it's there, then why don't I see it? Well, you do see it. You see part of it. You see Kailasa. Kailasa Mountain is considered that part of Mount Meru that can be seen on this earth. Uh, And um, so our perception is limited 
And uh, still, with that limited perception, we can um, we can allow the possibility that there is something beyond our perception, uh, as described, as as uh, referred to with language. Uh, and also, you mentioned making a distinction between ineffable and inconceivable. And uh, indeed, we see this in uh, the terminology anirvachaniya, which is a, a favorite word of the, um, the Advaitavadin traditions. And achintyatva, achintya, uh, which we find specifically in the Gaudiya tradition, where um, achintya is used to explain the uh, incapacity for us with our limited minds to comprehend the simultaneous oneness, oneness and difference of the self, the individual, uh, with the Supreme Self. Uh, this is kind of a, it's a doctrine, a chintya veda veda vada, uh, that is, has been established in the uh, Gaudiya tradition. Whereas uh, in the Advaita Vadin context, anirvachaniya is specifically applied to the notion, that is to say, ineffability, uh, to the notion of maya. Uh, maya or avidya, is maya mm, caused by or part of Brahman or is it a result of uh, the the individual who is conditioned? And if so, uh, there, there are questions of causality. <laughs> How is this possible for maya? Where is the, the locus of maya? And... Uh, to establish the locus of maya never seems quite satisfactory, no matter what is said, and therefore it is called anirvachaniya. It cannot be spoken. So yeah, that distinction is there. Thank you. Very interesting, thank you. Okay, we have one question uh, sent uh, through the chat. Uh, it is a question to Professor Kenneth, uh, posted by Prakriti. <laughs> Um, so the question is, um, my question is, how can professor differentiate between the word param brahma, brahma, and param atman when it comes to translation? Mm -hmm. Okay, these are different terms used. Uh, sometimes they're used a bit interchangeably uh, in the texts. Uh, Sometimes emphasis is intended, so param brahma will occasionally be used to emphasize uh, this third aspect or this third um, way of expressing uh, the notion brahman. Uh, I mentioned brahman, param atma, bhagavan. Vadanti tattva vidas tattvam yajjanam advayam. This non dual advaya jnana 
is described by the sages as, in three different ways, but it's the same, the same non-dual uh, jnana, advaya jnana. So uh, Bhagavan is sometimes referred to as Parabrahman, to emphasize that um, that it is a superior understanding of Brahman. It is a more um, specific and refined, again, according to Jiva Goswami, understanding of Brahman, uh, and therefore it is para, it is superior. And then Paramatman uh, is simply distinguishing between Atma and uh, this higher self, which is, um, which is the ultimate truth, the, which is sometimes termed Brahman, sometimes Bhagavan. That aspect of uh, ultimate truth, which is specifically, mm, it's explained elaborately by Jiva Goswami, is functioning within this world. And it's, uh, it's said that the Paramatma is accompanying each Atma. And that idea goes back to uh, Rig Veda, the notion of two tree, sorry, two birds in a tree. One is enjoying the fruit, the other is watching, observing. Uh, so this is understood to uh, point to how the Paramatma is functioning in this world. Thank you. Before I uh, invite Ruth and Ricardo to ask uh, their questions, I would also like to, I see that there are quite some ladies uh, in our room, so I would like to invite them to ask their questions if they like, if they feel a little bit shy to, to, to pose questions. Yes, please don't be shy. <laughs> okay, now Ruth, please. Yes, Kenneth, and another my previous remark was about the self, but now specifically about language in relation to God or ultimate reality. I think it's clear that we can speak about ultimate reality in different ways. We already do. Uh, this whole talk is about it. Um, we can talk about it negatively, as we have already seen. And we can say that God is not this and not that. Um, we can talk by analogy about God. We can compare God to the dreamer and life to the dream, for example. Um, but if we're, we're going technically uh, we, and we assume that God is something that is transcendent, that is not natural, but supernatural, not anything in particular, um, then we can say that God is above all categories, and you, you called it classes, maybe you mean the same, I'm, I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. um, in the sense that Aristotle um, puts being above the categories, and then you can say it's either all-pervading or it is completely separate from uh, the beings, mm -hmm. and that, that is fine. And if it is trans-categorical, if God is or ultimate reality is above the categories and trans-categorical, 
then it is also above the concepts, if concepts are combinations of categories. So then it's transconceptual. And I think when we say that God is ineffable, we mean just that, that we can't analyze God. God has no attributes. We cannot say he's, he's nice or big or small or friendly. Such properties are not applicable to what we mean by ultimate reality or God, by being. Um, but by saying that the ultimate reality has no properties, nothing can be predicated of it, or in theistic terms that it is attributeless, is the ultimate, the limit of reason, the limit of logic. We have said something about God, namely that we cannot give any properties, list any properties, any predicates, any attributes of God. God is attributeless. And that seems to say nothing, but it means a lot. For example, it means that there cannot be more than one God. Because for there to be two, one would have to have an attribute that the other does not have. But if it is attributeless, then it's always necessarily one and the same. Um, so this, while this seems to say nothing, the implications are, are tremendous, and, and we know an awful lot about God, but in a so different way from the way in which we know usual things. Because if we know a chair, then what we mean is we know the attributes, the properties of the chair. But if we know God, then we don't know properties. We just know that, that it has no properties. It is the self. It is the subject that I am from which I'm looking out. And, and so it's not anything I'm looking at, no object at all. So this is just a suggestion for how to go with language about God. Um, okay, thank you. Well, I think... Uh... My starting point for my reflection responding to what you're saying would be um, the, the idea or the, the conviction uh, that the Vaishnavas hold that God being all-powerful is also able to communicate with language. Uh, he is able to speak. He is able to um, be present in the world. He is able to act in the world. And um, so the, the Vaishnavas especially celebrate Krishna's uh, speaking in uh, a particular text. You may be familiar with the Bhagavad Gita. And, of course, the modern approach to this is to say, well, this is not actually God speaking. This is, um, you know, someone who has poetically expressed what he imagines to be what God has spoken, and so on. Um, or one can... Um, one can be open to the idea, well, let us suppose that if God is all-powerful, he could um, make this 
revelation, and it could speak uh, as is spoken, uh, as, as is understood to have been spoken, which now we have in written form in the Bhagavad Gita. So that's, that's one thing. I think that when we talk about um, the limits of, of language because it, uh, it, it deals in categories um, and that God is above these and therefore uh, ultimately we have to say God has no properties. This is where the Vaishnavas say, hold on, this is your own limitation in understanding properties, in understanding qualities, in understanding categories. Uh, and so we see an example given in the Bhagavad Gita, Urdvamula Madashaka Ashvatam Prahur Avyayam. It gives the example of a, a banyan tree uh, that has its branches and it has its roots, but it's all inverted, it's upside down. Uh, and it's um, and you can't tell where is the beginning and where is the end. Not rupam up asyeha tatobhalapite, nan toda chadir, not chadir na, some pratishta. You can't tell where it starts and where it ends. <laughs> or obviously, where, it's either it's in everything is. or in nothing, but it's not anything in particular. But no, it's not saying that. It's, it's giving an analogy. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, the analogy is, of course, limited, but it's, it's helpful in this regard, I think, uh, that uh, we, we are in a state of entanglement within this tree, and we cannot see our way out. Uh, and it's inverted, meaning that um, there is also an upright ordinary tree, and that upright tree, that is beyond this world, and that upright tree is the tree where there are, again, categories, there are properties, uh, there are qualities, there are emotions, uh, there is everything that we experience in this world, uh, but without the limitations that we experience in this world. So that is, um, that's one way of understanding, and as I said, it's an analogy. Um, the Upanishads like to speak in um, paradoxical language, so they will say, uh, The Lord moves, he does not move. <laughs> uh, exactly. he's, he's nearby, he's, he's far away. But it doesn't say that we can't say anything about it. <laughs> no, no, no. And, and God is speaking. If, if we realize that Atman is Brahman, then by speaking, we are God speaking. You know, there's no... In a certain sense. <laughs> oh, yeah. If you take it literally, if you say, I am that I am, if you pray and you say, I am that I am, can you help me? Yeah. Who is going to help me? Me. Um, well, it, it's simpler than it looks. I think the whole religion thing. <laughs> it's it's okay. <laughs> it's simple. <laughs> yes, uh, the the Vaishnavas 
this is something Jiva Goswami points out. He says, I mentioned before, there's this inconceivable oneness and difference. And Jiva Goswami says, um, it's healthy. <laughs> he doesn't use that word, but it's healthy to emphasize the difference for the sake of realizing ourself in relation to God. That is, that's called bhakti, where there can be uh, exchange, loving exchange. One can also emphasize the non-difference, and that can also be helpful at times, and that's suggested also in the Gita. Um, it can be helpful, especially in recognizing that we, uh, we are all in the same boat, all living beings are uh, of the same spiritual nature. But it's, it's a balancing act. Yeah. Ricardo, do you have anything to add? Yeah, thank you very much, Dragana. Uh, just a very quick question. In fact, I'd like to build on uh, Shivananda's comment. And I, I, I think uh, with it, we might try to make sense of the idea of God's mercy, that we need God's mercy to understand ultimate truth. And I'd like to, to know your opinion on that. Uh, so it, it, perhaps it makes, it makes sense to say that language uh, or language understanding depends on experience. Unless I, I have the experience of pain, I can't understand fully the word pain, the same thing with color and so on and so forth. So I, I, it seems to me that in the beginning, you wanted to distance yourself from the whole idea of missed experience. But uh, could we say that God's mercy is just, in some sense, the experience of God, that God allows us to experience him. And by doing that, then we can understand the whole discourse about, about God, his attributes, and so on and so forth. So at the end of the day, uh, the, whole, uh, uh, the whole thing about uh, 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 God's ineffability, language, and so on and so forth, will depend on something like a mystical experience. Does this make sense? Uh, yeah, the <laughs> the word mystical gets thrown around <laughs> a lot <laughs> and can be used in many ways. But okay, let's go with the word mystical. Um, in fact, uh, in the Gita, there's a, an expression that can be translated as as mystical. Um, Yogam Aishwaram uh, is sometimes translated that way. But, um, well, I would, I would just sort of uh, refer back to what we discussed in my presentation. I think, uh, where was it? I think it was Vishwanath, um, who, when he's talking about mercy, yeah, I think that was it, that um, the endeavoring, the practitioner, sadaka, when God sees, oh, this person is really trying to appreciate me by hearing uh, from, from the scripture and so on, then he, God bestows his mercy. And it's mentioned, he engages him in his service. Now, 
here's I think where we could uh, we could play with the idea of mysticism as divine service, where you're no longer you know, sort of standing by and musing, oh, I wonder if God is this way or that way. Uh, what is God like? Um, is there a God? And so on. But one is, this is where the word yoga is also used, where yoga uh, has the sense of being yoked. It's a, the English word is a cognate of the Sanskrit yoga, uh, one is yoked to God, and that yoking is a positive, it suggests a kind of engage, positive, active engagement. So uh, the word seva, or service, is often used for that. And then through that, um, the uh, this um, issue came up, Shivanand. Uh, mention in the beginning, do we have, what What are these tools? Are they in the self, the soul? Yes, then those, then the mind senses and, uh, and so on, intelligence of the self are fully activated. They're, they're un, or reactivated. That's a debate, activated, reactivated. Um, and then in that condition, yeah, that is a mystical state, you can say. I don't know what that, uh, have, whether that addresses your concern about mercy, divine mercy. <laughs> well, that's fine, thank you very much. Okay. <laughs> Any other questions or comments? Well, I have a comment, and that is I'm grateful again for this opportunity. Uh, I, I think it's wonderful uh, that you all organize the, the LADA events. It's, uh, it's very much uh, needed, I think, that these two um, components are brought together, logic, logic in its broader sense and, and religion. There's a real need for it, so... Keep it up. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Ricardo, would you like to add something? Uh, final announcements? Sure, sure, sure. Well, first of all, thank you, Dragana, for chairing the session. Th thank you. Uh, thank you, mm -hmm. Professor Kenneth Valpi. Thanks, uh, everyone, for, for coming. Uh, 